Genesis 41, 1-16 Pharaoh's Dreams When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. When out of the river they came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile, and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him of our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the inter interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Genesis chapter 41, verse 25 to verse 36. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all food of these good ears that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine.
Amen. That is the word of God for us this morning. Hi, my name is Terry Jank, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of sharing the message with us this morning. Uh, before we do, however, um, I do want to give you a COVID-19 update. And uh, I want you to know that uh, it was uh, not an easy decision that the board uh, made this past week on Tuesday evening to uh, not get back to some semblance of uh, services uh, with more numbers this, this, this month. We decided to defer until September to get back to as many people as we can safely have together in this uh, room on Sunday mornings, and um, it was made with much prayer and thought. And what you can know is there's a couple, couple of things. Number one is that we have created uh, a WRBC reopening task force. A group of people will be studying and thinking through and helping train uh, people like ushers and greeters, welcome center, resource center, people like that to get ready for September so that when we do invite you back and as many as, as we can have in this room as we can, when we do invite you back, you can know that we will be uh, as safe as possible. And so please uh, continue to pray that God will uh, direct us and lead us, and I'm, I'm excited to uh, see us together. Believe me, we take seriously the scripture that says in Hebrews 10, 25, let us not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day of the Lord's return coming. So we want to encourage one another. We're also, I want you to know, thinking of ways that we can do church better. And so uh, you'll be hearing more in September about how it is that we can not just have Sunday morning as church, but through the week connect with each other and build each other up in our faith. So um, I trust that uh, you will continue to pray and um, that God will bless us. Also, it was uh, wonderful this morning to see Andrew and Courtney Joy walk in, uh, people that are really loved and well-known, missed in our church family. So welcome here this morning. Amen. If you want to say hi to them safely at the end of the service, you're welcome to. Would you let me lead us in prayer before we hear the word of God? Father, now as we pause, we invite your, your spirit, Holy Spirit, to come. To come and do in us and for us and through us what only you can do. We offer our lives to you. In this time, we offer our minds to you to speak into our minds and our hearts so that our lives could be changed by your word. And Lord God, we lift up to you those that even in this moment are struggling, suffering with the COVID-19 virus or someone they know or with some other grief that they carry in their hearts. Would you meet them, O oh Lord, whether it is in Bolivia or India or here in Winnipeg? Jesus, we give this day to you now, this service to you, and we ask your blessing on the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in the book of Genesis for almost a year now, and in the last several weeks, we've been studying the patriarchs. And as you heard Stephen and Lisa read, we are studying the life of Joseph in these past weeks. 
And we're looking today at chapter 41, Joseph the ruler. And um, we're going to be talking about him. But before we get into the text, I want to I want to just talk for a moment uh, as an illustration about a man by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn who wrote a book in 1973 called the, the Gulag Archipelago, which was really an account of his time in a Soviet prison uh, based on his experiences um, in that time. He was sent to prison because of the Soviet authorities. They had intercepted a letter, actually. He had written a letter to a friend in which he had criticized Joseph Stalin and as well as the regime of the Soviet Union. And that letter was intercepted, and he was sent to prison for eight years, beginning in 1945. And he has a lot of profound thoughts in this book called The, the Gulag Archipelago. Um, but he has a lot of thoughts about human nature. But what I really want to quote to you is one quote that has to do with prison itself. Prison. Here's what he says. He says, bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. The maturity of the human soul is the object of life he'd learned through eight years in prison. I think he's on the first step toward the road, in, on the road to wisdom. He's on the first steps of the road to wisdom when he writes that. And um, I wonder if Joseph would have also written something like that. For we know that he goes from the pit, that's what the prison was called, that he was put in in, in Egypt. Uh, he goes from the pit to, to becoming a leader in, in um, Egypt at the time, to the palace of the pharaoh. And I wonder if he might have written something similar to what Solzhenitsyn wrote about prison. In those eight years, did he learn something? For when we see him come out of prison, when we see him emerge, and we don't know how long he was in there, the, there's an actual apocryphal book that uh, suggests, Book of Jasher, which is, suggests that he was in there for 12 years. We don't know if that's true or not. It was somewhere between 2 and 12 because we know that he was in prison two years after the cupbearer had already been released and he had helped him with his dreams. And in the scripture, we, we wonder, as we look at the scripture, we wonder, did Joseph learn some very deep, important lessons of faith during those eight years? Because when he emerges, he does not come out of prison as a man that is jaded, as a man that is bitter or vengeful or selfish or possessed by hatred. He comes out as a man, in one word, I think, I would like to say, he comes out as a man who is ready. What do I mean by that? I mean he's ready for the next assignment that God has for him. And, and the question that I would have for all of us today is, are you ready for the next assignment that God has for you? And, and, and the reason, the way you'll be ready for the next assignment God has for you is that you've got to leave the baggage of the last assignment that God had for you behind. That's what Joseph does. 
He comes out of prison and he is ready for the next assignment. He could be so angry with the cupbearer that was supposed to mention his name two years earlier. He could have been so angry with Potiphar's wife who got him into the mess in the first place. He could have been so angry with his brothers who who sold him as a slave. He could have been carrying a heart full of bitterness by this time. But we don't find that kind of man. He has left the past assignment behind him and he is ready for the next assignment. Are you ready for the next assignment that God has for you? Is your heart clean? Today's a good day to examine your heart to see if you're ready for the next assignment. Well, in the scripture that we read, Pharaoh has a dream. Have you ever woke up in the morning after a bad dream and been troubled? I mean, woken up almost in a sweat. Woken up and you just can't, you can't forget what you just saw in your dream, what you just experienced in your dream. That's the kind of dream that Pharaoh had. Genesis has dreams quite a bit, actually. Jacob, of course, the stairway to heaven dream is incredible. Joseph, as I said, about the cupbearer and the baker, and now Pharaoh. And it's interesting that in the Bible, there's two men that are big on dreams, Daniel and Joseph. And the interesting thing about these two guys is that both of them serve under pagan kings and, and they're both in, in Egypt and Mesopotamia under kings whose countries take really seriously things called dreams. In fact, they took dreams so seriously, they actually had expert professionals paid by the king, on call, ready to answer and interpret anything that came out as a vision or a dream. That's what it was like with Daniel and with Joseph. Because they believed in the ancient world that in the medium of dreams, the divine was speaking to the the mortal world. And so here we have these dreams that Joseph interprets from Pharaoh. And what makes these dreams so important is three things. Number one, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, dreamed these dreams. Number two... They troubled him. And number three, nobody that he had paid to do interpreting of dreams could tell him what they mean. And so the king of Egypt is disturbed. And if the king of Egypt is disturbed, all of Egypt is disturbed. And he had to find out what's going on. Well, it just so happened by the providence of God that the cupbearer to the king, who stood mostly in the presence of the king, was standing there and remembered what happened two years earlier when a Hebrew slave that he shared a prison cell with interpreted his dream that actually brought his freedom back to his position. And then he opens his mouth and he tells Pharaoh all about Joseph. There's a Hebrew slave that interpreted dreams He might be able to help you. Well, Pharaoh is excited. He calls for Joseph immediately. And um, Joseph comes and stands before the Pharaoh. He has to be shaved and given clothes. Uh, Comes out and and he stands. And the first thing he says in verse 16 of the chapter that we read is, he said, it's not in me to interpret dreams, but maybe God will give 
a favorable answer. And the God he's talking about is Joseph's God, the true God. Not the gods, but God. And uh, so he's giving glory to God immediately. And then as soon as he hears the dream and he gives the interpretation of the dream, again he gives glory to God in verse 25. God has revealed to you what he is about to do. He's about to do this in Egypt. God is telling you. He's giving you a fair warning. And he went on to say that dreams are one and the same. The seven fat cows and the seven big heads of grain represent seven years that are going to be wonderful in Egypt, bumper crops in Egypt. And then it's going to be followed by the, the seven years of drought, seven thin cows and the seven heads of grain that eat up the seven cows and the green, head grains. Uh, they're going to be seven years of drought. And, and at the end, if you don't save now, you will not have it later. He gives this warning, gives this warning. Now, the important thing is that the imagery of the dream is also very significant. Why do I say that? It's because we know what the worldview of the Pharaoh of Egypt was, because we also know what his beliefs were. He was not a, a monotheistic, one God kind of guy. He was a polytheistic. He believed in many gods. Egyptians believed in many gods, and, and, and the things of the earth represented these gods. So when they talked about the Nile, the Nile was the lifeblood of the, the land of Egypt. It flowed right through the land of Egypt. The Nile was the place where civilization was, was possible because of the Nile. The transportation up and down the Nile was possible. Irrigation for farming. The richest soil came out of the Nile. The food such as fish. The Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. And then adding to that, there was also the other symbols. The cows and the grain that fed the cows. Again, the substance of their life was, talked, was in this dream. Suffice it to say that in this culture, for this king of Egypt, when these things were dreamt about and he was troubled, suffice it to say that by the time he seized Joseph, he is earnestly looking for a, an interpretation to this dream. And God sends Joseph, and of course it's Joseph God, Joseph's God that sent the dreams to Pharaoh, and it's Joseph's God who knows what the interpretation of the dreams are all about. But in verse 33, we read that not only does Pharaoh not only does Joseph tell Pharaoh the meaning of the dream, he also starts to, unsolicited, he, start, he goes on to say, now here's what I think you should do. He says, you should start saving one-fifth of the crop each year. You should start storing it up. You should get administrators that are going to take care of this. He just starts to roll out a plan because, you see, Joseph was given by the Spirit of God this gift of administration. And so as they listen to him, Pharaoh and his advisors say, yeah, it sounds like a good plan. We're going to ask you to lead the charge. And so all of a sudden, here we have this turn of events that this, this man, Joseph, that we have seen get strike after strike against him, goes from the pit to the palace of Pharaoh. Now, in the time that I have this morning, I want to say three things about the life of Joseph. I believe that the life of Joseph points back to Adam. I believe the life of Joseph points forward to Jesus. And I believe the life of Joseph points presently to us as an example. So let's look at those 
together. And let's start with Joseph as a reminder of Adam. I think that if you look hard, you'll see that the writer of Genesis, Moses, writing to the very first recipients of the letter, Israel, wants them to see Adam in Joseph. Let me suggest why I believe that. Think of the similarities between the two stories. Here is Joseph made to be the prime minister of Egypt, the second in command after Pharaoh, over all of the land of Egypt. And what does God do with Adam? God places Adam in the garden over everything that he's created. Everything. Nobody, Pharaoh said, nobody does anything except Joseph says he can do it. God says to Adam, have dominion, rule. It's yours. Joseph was given a signet ring with the royal seal, perhaps the image of Pharaoh on it, fine garments and a gold chain. He looked like a Pharaoh. Adam was created in the image of God, was God's image bearer in the garden, ruling as God in the garden. Joseph was placed in a chariot behind Pharaoh, and everybody bowed down to him. Adam was the one that was supreme on earth over all that God had made to rule over it. Joseph was given power to speak with the authority of Pharaoh in all the land. Adam was the understudy of God. He even was given names to all the animals. Joseph was given an Egyptian name, with an uncertain meaning. We don't know what it really meant, but God gave Adam a name too. Joseph was given an Egyptian wife. God gave Adam a wife, Eve. Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. God gave Adam two sons, Cain and Abel. Joseph was a man in whom was found the spirit of wisdom between knowledge of good and evil. God gave Adam the responsibility of looking to God for the knowledge of good and evil, but he chose to pick of that forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he disobeyed God. So what are we seeing in all of these things, in all of these similarities? What are we saying? I think what we're seeing is that perhaps the author is holding up Joseph as an example of a truly wise and faithful man and perhaps showing us in in a reflective way what Adam could have or should have been but was not if he had lived obediently to God. So I think Joseph, by the intent of the author, is pointing back to to Adam and showing us what could have been. But even more importantly, Genesis is holding up Joseph as an anticipation of a man yet to be born. And that comes to the second point, is where Joseph really is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Now, you know that Jacob, as we've studied, Jacob had 12 sons. 12 sons, but only two of them were really important in the text, in the redemptive history. And they are Joseph and Judah. Joseph is important because he's actually the one that saves the family from starvation, as we are going to see. Story to be a spoiler on the story here. But. And Judah is the one that's so important because it is through the line of Judah that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, 
In Judah, in Joseph, though, I think we still see a foreshadowing of Christ, and biblical students, Bible students and scholars, call that typology. They call it like it's a foreshadowing, a prefiguring, something that happens in the Old Testament that shows something about the redemptive history that's coming in the New Testament. Just like, just like Moses was not a forefather lineage-wise of Jesus, but yet is a type of Christ in the sense that he leads Israel. Um, similarly, Joseph is a type of Christ, a typology, a foreshadowing, a prefiguring. And I know that we're going to get way too deep into this if I go too far, but I want to just give you one definition of what typology is by a man I like, James Hamilton. He says that it's a God-ordained, author-intended, historical correspondence and escalation in significance between persons, events, or institutions across the Bible's redemptive historical story. Now, I know that might just blow you away for a moment, but let's break it down. <laughs> First of all, a typology is God-ordained. In other words, if, we're, if this has any substance, and what I'm preaching right now has any substance, it's got to be God ordained. God intended that you sitting here in the 21st century, opening up chapter 41 of the Bible, reading about Joseph, intends that you see something of Jesus in this. That's God ordained. That's got to happen if this is a type. If not, just forget this whole point. Secondly, it's author intended. Now, this one is a little bit different. We can't really know whether Moses' writing really was thinking, one day the Messiah will come, and, and, and as I write about Joseph and the history of Joseph here, I think he's sort of re prefiguring. We're not sure on that one, but we think that that's here. Just as I think Moses was thinking of Adam. He is thinking of the one that will follow in this Abrahamic line and come to be the Messiah. There's enough that Moses knew to write that way. And then there's this historical correspondence. There's a connection. And there is this escalation of significance. There's a significance to these people that are prefiguring, somehow looking at Jesus Christ. Now let's, let's just talk about this for a moment and... and um, we can talk more later, privately, if you want, about it. With this definition, can we see that Joseph, indeed, is a prefigurement of Jesus? Well, first of all, I want to say that just as the first Adam, we saw a type, or we see a, a picture in Joseph, we could also say that the second Adam in the New Testament, Jesus, because Jesus is called the last Adam in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15. And how is that? Well, in the case of Adam and Christ, everything that Adam does, Jesus undoes. Okay? As in Adam all die, guess what? In Christ shall all be made alive. And in this way, if we think of how the book of Genesis begins, think about how, how does Genesis begin? One brother kills another brother. And how does Genesis end? The brother that was going to be killed forgives the band of brothers that tried to kill him. Do you see that there's a reversal? The curse was reversed into blessing. No vengeance on the part of Joseph. At the end, of the, at the end in chapter 50, he's able to say, no, you meant it for harm, 
God meant it for good. You see, that's where we see this prefigurement of Christ that takes the curse of Adam, reverses it, and creates blessing for all those who are under the banner of God's love in Jesus. Now, we could go into this a lot. I'm not gonna go further. There's many studies done. I read one this past week that did 60 comparisons between Joseph and Jesus. But merely a, a, a similarity does not mean it's a typology. In other words, the fact that the fact that Jesus and Joseph were sold into, with silver coins, the fact that they were betrayed by those who loved them, that doesn't mean it's a typology. But the fact that in Joseph and in Jesus we see this reversing of the curse that was upon the redemptive line of Abraham, that is significant. And so Joseph could have, when his brothers come, and we're gonna see this in the weeks to come, Joseph could have received his brothers and uh, killed them, gotten vengeance on them. He could have let the curse take its, take its course, and the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, would stop. He could have killed Judah, the line of Abraham, where the Messiah was to come. He didn't, because he chose blessing, he chose forgiveness. And so we see in this man, Joseph, a prefigurement of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3.15, when God curses the serpent, Satan, he says that the seed of the woman, who is Jesus Christ, will one day bruise his head, even though the serpent would bruise his heel. The, the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head, even though the serpent would bruise the seed of the woman's heel. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus went to the cross, he was, his heel was bruised, but in that event of going to the cross, he crushed the head of Satan. And that's one of the earliest prophecies of Jesus Christ, Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And so Joseph is a reminder of Adam. Joseph is a foreshadowing of Christ. And finally, Joseph is thirdly an example to us of wisdom in faithful service. Now, this could almost be a commercial on the book of James for this fall, because as we get ready to look at the book of James, I think that Joseph kind of lives the book of James. He lives wisdom out in a way that is faithful service because that's what I think sums up Joseph's life, an example of wisdom lived out in faithful service. And you know something? We all need in our lives examples of men and women who are wise and that wisdom is shown in faithful service. And um, so in this fall, as we study the book of James, <clears throat> we're going to be answering the question, what are some of the signs of a genuine saving faith? What are some of the signs of a saving faith <clears throat> that, that really evidence wisdom and faithful service? What are the, some of the signs? We're gonna look at that in the book of James this, uh, this fall. But uh, to, uh, to bring this slowly to a conclusion this morning, I want to actually pause and think about examples that we do have in our lives that um, are examples of wisdom lived out in faithful service. 
And if you'll permit me, I'd like to do a bit of an in-memoriam this morning with two, of two giants of the faith that died this past summer. Two giants of the evangelical church that died this past summer were Ravi Zacharias and J.I. Packer. And just to, to honor them this morning as examples of men like Joseph who, who had wisdom that was lived out in a life full of faithful service, I just want them to take the pulpit this morning. I want to give each of them time in the pulpit this morning <laughs> to let them share just some wisdom as they lived out their life in faithful service and what they might say about Joseph's life if they were, were able to be here in the flesh. So let's start with Ravi Zacharias. He says this, one of my favorite quotes, he says, a calling is simply God's shaping of your burden and beckoning you to your service to him in the place and pursuit of his choosing. Boy, that, that's the way Joseph lived. That's the way Joseph lived his life. He also said, God trained Moses in a palace to use him in a desert, and he trained Joseph in a desert to use him in a palace. You see, it's God that disposes and predisposes and assigns the task and so on. He said, I am absolutely convinced that meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaningless comes from being weary of pleasure. And that is why we find ourselves emptied of meaning with our pantries still full. Don't you hear when you hear Ravi Zacharias? Don't you hear wisdom? And don't you know that his years spent on this earth were lived out in faithful service? That's what we need examples of in our lives. Not just the dead examples of Joseph and Packer and Zacharias, but we need the examples today. And then there's J.I. Packer who said, to know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless. Boy, it stabilizes the saints, though. Isn't that true? Don't you find that? I love what he says about the sovereignty of God. Pastor Doug and Azur in the last few weeks have been talking about the providence of God, the sovereignty of God in Joseph's life. Packer says this. He says, people treat God's sovereignty as a matter of controversy, but in Scripture, it's a matter of worship, isn't it? Aren't you thankful this morning that we have a sovereign God, that whatever happens to you, God's still over it. Whatever cards Satan might play to come against you, God's got the final hand. He is the one that's over all. And Packer says this as well, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. I end on that quote simply to segue our time together to the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. But as they do, I just want to explain to you that this morning as we go from the Word of God to the table of the Lord, I want you to know that the table that is before us is the Lord's table. And as we have pointed toward Jesus Christ, <clears throat> I want us to remind ourselves that Joseph is just this prefiguring this, this foreshadowing 
of the Son of God that would come years and years later. And he would be the one that reverses the curse of sin. Because in Jesus Christ, he would bear in his body on the tree all of the sins of all the people that would ever come to know him and love him and receive him. And uh, this morning, as we pause now for a worship song, it's a moment to ready your heart as you get ready to receive the bread and the cup. But it's also a moment to get ready physically. So what I'm asking you is if you're watching online and you need to go in during this song and get your bread and your, your juice or cup ready and then come back to us, uh, I will meet you at the table right after this song. And for those of you that are in this room, there is a table set up at the very back of the auditorium and you can go on either side of the table. Please keep the distance from the next people. And uh, we would invite you during this song, song to go immediately get the bread and the cup, and then come back to your chair, and then I'll announce that we'll partake of the meal together. And those of you who have families with children, I leave it up to you parents to decide whether your children understand the Lord's Supper enough and are followers of Jesus Christ if they are meant to partake of this meal. It's up to you, parents. And so let's uh, pause now and let's worship the Lord as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. William Cowper, the author of that hymn, suffered a great deal in his life, and through that suffering was able to come out of that, those experiences uh, with a refined faith. I wonder if you could look at some of the pain that you've gone through, and you could say in the words of Solzhenitsyn, Bless you, prison. Bless you. <clears throat> it takes great faith. Or maybe I better say it this way. It takes faith in a great God. Not great faith, but faith in a great God. To be able to go through whatever we go through, especially that which is painful, and to say at the end, bless you, because through you I've learned something that maybe I wouldn't have learned otherwise. May the Lord encourage your heart today. As you partake of this meal, may you bring all of your experience before the Lord Jesus Christ. May you know that there's not one part of your entire history, not one part of your person, <clears throat> not one part of your existence that is something he doesn't know about. He knows you completely. He loves you completely. He knows the failings of your life. He knows the recurring things that you struggle with. He knows that in this moment, as you sit or stand before him with bread and cup in hand, that you are simply saying to him, Jesus, I can't live the Christian life. Jesus, you have to be my substitute, not just at the cross that you died on 2,000 years ago, but each moment you must be my representative before God the Father. I live and I breathe and I have my being in you. He is our all in all. And the reason the Lord Jesus said that 
that we were to partake of this meal was he was asking us on a regular basis to be dramatizing his death, to, to never forget that this event where his, his, the bread representing his body and the cup representing his blood, that this broken body and this shed blood was necessary for all that we needed to be absolutely at peace with God. And so now, let's pray and give thanks for the bread and the cup. Lord God, I thank you for this bread. We thank you for this cup. We remind ourselves, Lord, that we are but frail, mortal human people that struggle with all of life. And you are a patient, long-suffering, gracious God and Father who walks with us. And we partake of this bread and this cup today, remembering your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who reversed the curse of sin and brought the blessing of the Father upon us, who are the seed of Abraham through faith in the Messiah, Jesus, that line of Judah. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Brothers and sisters, now eat this bread and drink this cup and be thankful. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Traditionally at this time, when we have our Lord's Supper together at the beginning of the month, we take a special offering for our benevolent fund, which is a fund which uh, is there to help people in need in and around our church family. Uh, we're not doing that here today, and of course we can't do that uh, in a physical way in your homes as well, but, but if you go online uh, to our website, uh, there's, a, there's a place there for giving that will uh, walk you through how to give to that or how to give to our, our ministry fund here as well. Let's respond to everything that God's done this morning. Lord, you are our all in all. You are our God. And it is true that glorifying all that you are worth is our highest privilege and our highest calling. Enjoying relationship with you is the deepest love we can know. That you are the lifeblood of what our existence is. And we know that we cannot with our own strength praise you near enough. We know that we cannot attain even relationship with you if it was just us. Everything depends on you, and we thank you, Lord, for your love for us and that you've done everything for us. Thank you for your sovereignty, that you will bring about your glory in and through us, sometimes even, even because of the mistakes we've made or through the mistakes we've made. You will use those things for your glory. We can trust that you will have your way, and we pray that you would continue to have your way, that we might have the joy of choosing to follow you and serve you and seeing you followed and served. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here this morning and for everything you've taught us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.